morning, friends. It's good to be with you this morning. <clears throat> As Pastor Joe said, it's been a bit of a week for him and for myself. I got a call last week that my father was in the hospital, um, who is the primary caregiver for my mother. And so my brother and I began to frantically figure out our schedules um, and who could be there when. And so he took the first shift. I took the second shift, and uh, we got Dad home from the hospital, and it is a lengthy, long, painful recovery for him, and a huge adjustment for the family, as you can imagine. Again, when, one, when the person who's the caregiver is suddenly ne in need of care, um, things change quite dramatically. And so, as Joe said, we were texting back and forth, can you do this, can you help me, or I'm glad to step in, and, and so we, we figured that all out. Um, but it reminded me again today that pastors are people too. You know that, right? Pastor Joe won't say this, but I can say it. And since I'm in the pulpit, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> you know, pastors have tragedies, crises. We even have bad days. Is that okay? They always come at the exact worst time, don't they? When there's a funeral or a wedding or a sermon to preach, then crisis hits. But we're just people too. We're not perfect. <gasps> Shocking. Sometimes we get grumpy and tired. I know, I know. Sometimes we don't even seem that pastoral. But would that be okay? Would you be willing to love us and give us a little grace when that happens? Now, Pastor Joe's not going to say this, but I'm part-time and I can say what I want. So again, you know, there's that great passage in um, Exodus 17. You remember it where the Amalekites attack the Israelites and Moses orders Joseph to go up and battle against them. And Moses says, I'm going to go up on that hill over there and I'm going to hold up the staff that the Lord gave me. And as long as Moses is standing up there with the staff and his arms are up, the Israelites are winning. But when his arms get tired, even Moses' arms get tired, and they stop to start to drop, what happens? The Amalekites begin to win. And so Aaron and Hur come over, and they get a stone, and they move it so that Moses can sit on it, and they stand on either side, and they hold up Moses' arms for him. Sometimes pastors need you to hold up our arms. I hope that's okay this morning. And sometimes the way you hold up our arms means giving us some space. Some space to recuperate, regenerate, and reinvigorate. Like those three R's, Joe? <laughs> and we're thankful for who you are. And we're thankful for who Paznaz is and the way you do care for us. But Pastor Joe's not going to say that, so I'm going to say, treat him and Joe as a person, would you? One of my old professors, Arch Hart, who was a professor of psychology, spent his whole life studying pastors and the stresses and strains on them. And Arch was, was, was fond of saying, pastors don't fail because they forget their pastors. Pastors fail because they forget their people. And I would say that pastors don't just fail because the church forgets their pastors. Pastors sometimes fail because the church forgets we're people. So let's all hold each other's arms up today, can we? And going forward and loving on one another. And they will know we are Christians by that love. Amen.
Now, the second reason I mention that is because, as Joe has said, we have passed this sermon back and forth a couple of times. So just like the little drummer boy, I bring my gift before the altar this morning. (laughs) And I hope Christ and you, I hope it will mean something to all of you this morning. And because it's late in the game, right, you don't have the passage of Scripture. It's not going to be on the screen. You're going to have to go old school with me this morning and pull out that Bible in front of you. Pull out the laptop, not, probably not the laptop, the iPad. <laughs> maybe you have your laptop. I don't know. That's fine if you do. Uh, your iPhone, whatever you have that maybe where the scripture is this morning. And I'm going to jump around a lot, but I'm going to be in 2 Kings because we are continuing our ser- series where we're telling the story of God throughout the whole of scriptures. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are interested in how do we go about choosing the stories that we're going to preach on. Well, sometimes we choose stories, the great stories of scripture, in hopes that we might put a little new spin or new twist on them. Sometimes we choose important stories that have been overlooked, and sometimes we choose stories that can help us and model for us how one might approach and interpret and engage Scripture, especially if one is a Nazarene. And today I've chosen a story, not because it's especially encouraging or inspiring, but because I think it is a cautionary tale. This is a story of King Josiah from 2 Kings. Now, I don't know if you've been reading along with us in this series. The passages that are coming next are in your worship folder, and we encourage you to read along. But I don't know if you've read First and Second Kings all the way through, but there are some pretty interesting things in there. I mean, it's downright Shakespearean at times, isn't it? There are plots, and there are families against families, and there's backbiting, and there's stealing, and there's all sorts of crazy stuff in there. And then there's some parts, frankly, that I think are a little boring. I mean, it's list after list of bad kings, isn't it? And you know it's a bad king because they're all described this way. King so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how you know when you got a bad king. King so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we all remember that the Israelites wanted a king, didn't they? They asked for a king, and they got one. Not just one, but many, and almost all of them... We're kind of a bit of a wreck. Oh, David and Solomon were good, you might be tempted to say. Were they? I mean, they had their moments, but they also had some very disappointing moments as well. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But Kings especially reminds me of that old saying, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. They wished for a king, and they got many, most of whom were exploitative and oppressive even to their own people. Even to their own people. They were power-hungry, they were lustful, and they lost their way. And we hear it over and over again. King so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But then, we come to 2 Kings. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. 2 Kings, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. And listen to what it says. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. 
sounds a bit different, doesn't it? That's pretty good press. But wait, there's even more. Listen to the text near the end of his reign. Chapter 23, verse 25 says this. Before him, that is Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Whoo! No king like him before or after. Strong words indeed. Good recommendation. But what makes Josiah such a great king? Well, if we were return to chapter 22, verse 3 and following, what we'll find is that King Josiah, when he is 26 years of age, I just want to pause there again. Because we're talking about growing young around here. I know it's weird to become king when you're eight, right? But now he's king and he's actually entered into his, pre, his, 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 his monarchy. He's, he's old enough now to really give orders. But friends, he's still 26 years old. When he's 26 years old, he is telling the people, he, he's working with the people to renovate the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And while they're doing that, the high priest finds the book of the law, it's called, somewhere in the temple. The book of the law, which has been lost, which has not been read, which has not been followed for quite a long, long time. Because king so-and-so and king so-and-so and king so-and-so and king so-and-so have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And the high priest finds this book of the law. Now, most Old Testament theologians believe that what was found was some version of Deuteronomy. Some version of Deuteronomy. Imagine for a second that our Bible is lost for who knows how long. And somebody, suddenly someone finds it. And says, hey, we found this weird, strange book. This, this is what's happened here. So the priest gives it to the king's secretary, who sort of nonchalantly shows it to King Josiah. Hey, we found this book. And then the secretary reads it out loud to King Josiah, which probably means Josiah commanded him to read it out loud. And the text tells us that when Josiah hears the book read aloud, he tears his clothes. Now you scholars know that that is a sign of repentance. Right? That is a sign of repentance. King Josiah feels pretty sure, as he hears the words of the book, that God is going to be really upset with Judah because, quote, our ancestors did not obey the words of this book, unquote. But Josiah also suspects that its message needs to be applied to the present as well. That's really important, friends. King Josiah doesn't just think about this as a history book. Oh, those bad ancestors back there that did bad things. He's thinking about what does this have to say to us today? So he tells us trusted confidants to inquire about the book. That is to authenticate it. And go to the prophetess, Hulda. Now, the prophetess... Hulda does authenticate it, and she prophesies in chapter 22, and hear the words of Hulda, and 
speaking for the Lord from verses 15 through 17. She declared to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and have made offerings to other gods so that they have provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Sounds like a really bad Monday morning to me. So back to the original question. Given all of this, why is Josiah labeled as such a good king? No king like him before and no king like him after. Why does the writer refer to Josiah in this way? Well, one Old Testament theologian, who happens to share my last name and be my brother, suggests that Josiah is a great king because, in fact, Josiah is a good reader. Sometimes phrases just knock me off my socks, you know, knock my socks off. It doesn't do it for you, but I get tingles. (laughs) Josiah is a good king because Josiah is a good reader. If the book of the law that is found in the temple is in fact Deuteronomy, what do we find there? Well, what's really interesting is what we find in Deuteronomy 17. So if you'd like to, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy 17, chapter 17. And what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning at verse 14, are the instructions on how to be a king in Israel. Did you know there were instructions? Listen to this. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he, that is the king, right, must not acquire many wives for himself. Or else his heart will turn away. Also silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him and he shall read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and all these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, ready for this, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. That's how to be a good king in Israel. A king who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and as it is said here, and as it is said about Josiah, if you caught that, doesn't turn aside from the commandments either to the left or to the right. But again, what is really interesting is that a good king is a good reader. The king shall have a copy of the law written for him. 
Some theologians actually suggest that what this means is that the king himself will write it down in the presence of the scribes. And he is to read it and to meditate on it daily. What he is not to do, did you catch that, is to acquire power. See horses, right? Don't get more horses. He's not to acquire many wives. Okay, David. Okay, Solomon. Well, you know why many wives are a problem, don't you? Because all these wives are treaties with other countries, and they all come with their own gods. And theologians say that when it says that the king's heart may be turned toward the wives, what they mean is that the king's hearts may be turned toward the gods of the wives. That happened only a few times, didn't it? All the time. All the time. And the good king must not amass a bunch of stuff, a bunch of wealth. Now, there's some theologians who believe that Deuteronomy was written post-Moses or that people added to it after Moses. And some theologians actually believe that that little section in there is actually a dig at Solomon. <laughs> Solomon had some stuff. You know, right, it took twice as long for Solomon to build his own home as it did the house of the Lord. Yikes emoji. <laughs> what we do know is that both David and Solomon and many, many kings failed on all accounts according to Deuteronomy 17. So did most of the kings in Israel and Judah. This idea of a good king is very different from the kinds of leaders we even have today, isn't it? Like Josiah, we need to interpret this passage not just about our ancestors, but about for our, our present time. Here we have an image of a king who is not rich and powerful, who doesn't exploit others, who doesn't exalt himself over others, isn't at risk of worshiping other gods and engaging in idolatry, but instead reads the Torah night and day, obsessively even. This kind of king looks more... Well, looks a lot more like um, a Sunday school teacher than the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Or even the men and women who sit in the highest seats of government. Great story, right? Good story. Yes, it is a good story. But what I want to say today to you is that I think this is also a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale of what happens when we lose our way, when we lose our center, when we aren't, you ready for it, good readers. When we are tempted by the trappings of the culture around us and are even tempted sometimes to baptize these elements around us and call them Christian, when in reality we are bowing down to the foreign gods of consumerism, capitalism, nationalism, individualism, self-preservation, and self-protection, and away from the Lord. This easily happens, I want to suggest this morning, when in fact we don't act as good readers of the book. Oh, we might read the book. But we read into the book, adding our own unique interpretations that fit our comfort and our safety and our side. We're all guilty, friends, even pastors, because remember, we're people too. But good readers actually get read well. Say that again. 
good readers of the book actually get read well. In other words, we have to let this book read us. Are you with me now? Josiah reads the book. And he is read by the book. And because he is read by the book, it spurs him to repentance and change. Repentance and change. When is the last time you read something in Scripture and you were moved to repentance and change? That's how you know you're being read well. But this story, I think, is a cautionary tale in another way as well. You see, despite Josiah's best efforts, we read in chapter 23, 26, and 27, these words. After all Josiah has done, all the ways in which he goes from this place and he reads the text to the people. He gathers all the people in Judah together and he reads the text. And he makes a covenant with the Lord that they will change. And then he goes through an elaborate process of getting rid of all the foreign gods in the country. It's elaborate and it's violent. And it includes burning and pulling down and knocking over. And then he turns the people back to engaging in the law. After all of that, all of that repentance and all of that changed life, we come to this passage again, chapter 23, 26 and following. Still, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah. Because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him, the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel, and I will reject this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. You see, God did not turn from his wrath. The damage had been done. too deep, it's too long, and for King Josiah, even for all his greatness, it was a case of a little too little, a little too late. What are we supposed to do with that? Pray and leave? Well, I think this is another reason that Josiah is such a great king. He had read the law, and he had heard from Huldah the prophetess that God's wrath was coming. And yet, even then, Josiah did what he could with what he had. Even then, he did what he could with what he had. That is very Deuteronomy. In fact, 
Did you catch how he is described in chapter 23, verses 25? He turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. Sound familiar? It's the Shema from Deuteronomy. It's the Israel prayer. It's their central prayer. And Josiah embodied it. I mean, giving what Josiah knew was coming from the prophetess, And from the law, a natural response might have been just to go with business as usual. He could have engaged in all the excesses of the former kings, but he doesn't. He reads the law and he's read by the law. And he knows that the problems they are facing are a result of the ancestors, but also they are the issue for us in the present moment. And he does something about it. Again, what might this mean for us today? Well, I worry sometimes that we treat our faith journey like the hero story. You know the hero story, right? We're going to do all that we think is required of us in order to get to the hero moment. We're going to do all the stuff that's required of us so that we can have success. Pass the test. Get the gold star. Obtain the accolades. Fill the sanctuary. Build a building. Raise and plant a flag. Show the world. But that's not what Josiah does. He knows at one level that he's fighting a losing battle. He does all the good he does because it's what he's been called to do by his Lord and Maker. Josiah leads out of weakness, out of humbleness. Even in the face of defeat. Even in the prediction of defeat. He does what is right because it is right. And that is what a follower of the Lord does regardless of the outcome. Are you with me now? In fact, Josiah leaves the outcome in the hands of the Lord. There was a man from Galilee, Jesus, who also did the right thing, knowing full well where it would lead. He too was a king in the spirit of Deuteronomy 17. He was one who had nothing, who was a servant of all, who was a good reader of the book, and who acted out of that reading. We might say that even the scripture read Jesus well. Friends, there's a cautionary tale for us here this morning, I believe. First, do we forget who and what we are to be as the people of God? Could this be because we are not good readers of the book? Or perhaps because we do not let ourselves be read by the book? Second, do we continue to do what we have been called to do? Even when we have no idea where it might lead? Hmm. I'm going to say that one again. Feels appropriate right now. (laughs) Do we continue to do what we've been called to do even when we have no idea where it might lead? Can we give the outcome to God? Even in this place called Paznaz, can we do what we think needs to be done as we listen to the Spirit and one another? And then can we just say, God, this is your thing. 
You do what needs to be done. Will we be followers of Christ in the spirit of King Josiah in Deuteronomy 17 or something else? Will we do what is right or evil in the sight of the Lord? I think that is our cautionary question for today. Will you stand with me and receive this benediction? Friends, unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine by the power of, at work within us, to him be glory forever in Christ Jesus in the church, forever and ever, and all God's people said, amen. Go in grace and peace.